Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, plant this word we have heard this night deep within our hearts, that we might be renewed, that we might be strengthened, that we might be built up and be found in Christ our Lord. Let all that we do be done for His sake. Let all that we do be found in Him purified and offered to you as a holy and wonderful sacrifice. Grant your Spirit to lead and guide us and to renew us continually that we might go forth showing forth your glory shining out in the works that we do. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the Lord of the Rings, there is a great ring of power that has fallen into the hands of some hobbits, of one hobbit in particular. And as part of the story in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, this hobbit, Frodo, carries it to the elven kingdom of Rivendell. And there, there is a grand meeting of the peoples of Middle-earth to determine what to do with this ring of power. It is Sauron's ring. All of his malice and hate and power has been poured into this ring. What should they do with it? How can they dispose of it? Some suggest throwing it into the sea, into the deep sea where it can be lost forever and hopefully just forgotten about. But that doesn't deal with the power of the ring. For who knows what dwells in the depths of the sea? What evil creatures are there that might come across it and take it up for their own and thus become wicked servants of Sauron and be used by him to overthrow Middle-earth? Another suggestion is to send it westward. Send it to the Grey Havens that it might sail on west and go to Valinor. Let the Valar deal with it. Let them deal with this wickedness and this evil that is from this world. Take it to another world and let them handle it. That seems like a good idea, and yet Geldor the elf rejects this idea, saying Sauron would expect that. He would be watching, he would be ready to steal the ring back, thinking the elves will send it there. And Elrond, he agrees, this ruler of the elves at Rivendell, saying the westward road seems easiest. Therefore, it must be shunned. It will be watched. Too often the elves have fled that way. Now at the last we must take a hard road, a road unforeseen. There lies our hope, if hope it be. And ultimately, they all come to the conclusion that the Valar would reject it. They would reject the ring if they did send it anyway. They would send it back to Middle-earth, for it was a problem of Middle-earth. And thus Middle-earth must deal with it on their own. You may be wondering, what does this have to do with what we're doing right now here on Ash Wednesday? I think it gives a picture of what we are dealing with. This one ring of power symbolizes the very sin that is in each and every one of us. This sin that can be amplified by our actions and by our thoughts. This sin that will ultimately lead to our deaths. You see, the sin can't just be removed from us. It must be dealt with in a real way. 
And on this Ash Wednesday, we consider how it is dealt with. We consider what the Lord has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. For we cannot be here. We would not be here. Save for the work of Jesus himself upon the cross. For when you look in the mirror and when you look at others' foreheads this night, you will see ashes, yes, on on others' foreheads and upon your own. But those ashes form the cross. They form a cross that reminds us that one has gone before and died on our behalf. He has taken away the power and the sting of sin and death itself from us. And thus calls us into new life, calls us into a new way of being, calls us away from what we are in and of ourselves. And yet we hear in our readings this day a tension that exists in dealing with sin in our own lives. That is, God has dealt with sin in the ultimate way through Christ upon the cross. We work every day to apply that redemption to ourselves and deal with the ongoing reality of sin in our lives. And we see a tension in all of our scripture readings this day. You see, over in Joel, the Lord calls for outward fasting. He calls for a public time of weeping and mourning at the sin of the people. He calls for public repentance that flows out of a heart that has been rended wide open. A heart that has been torn open because of the sin within Sin that needs to be confessed, sin that needs to be set aside, but the people are called to do it as a corporate body, all the people of God called together to confess their sin. But then we have the warnings and the words of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others. When you give to the needy, don't do it in front of others. When you pray, don't do it in front of others. When you fast, don't do it in front of others. What are we to make of this tension that exists between God's calling to the people in the book of Job and Jesus' words to us this night from the Gospel of St. Matthew? You may notice that I left out a certain phrase when speaking of Jesus' words. And I think that right there begins to ease that tension, begins to ease and break that divide that exists between this public corporate confession and repentance and fasting and mourning and weeping. And this personal thing that Jesus is talking about. You see, he keeps talking about there in Matthew 6. He keeps saying, don't do these things in order to be seen, in order to be praised, in order to be honored by all the people around you. Because the one who seeks to only do those outward actions for the sake of being seen does not have a heart that has been rended wide open. They do not have a heart that acknowledges the sin within and the sin that needs to be dealt with. And I think we find even more help in understanding this tension and seeing how it is broken by hearing from our collect of the day. The collect that says, Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing that you have made and you forgive the sins of all who are penitent. The prayer that we just used tonight is an old prayer. It's based on prayers that have come before and it actually paraphrases a little bit from what we have In our Book of Common Prayer is Anglicans, and I have in my Anglican Book of Common Prayer. In the prayer we use tonight, it speaks of truly repenting of our sins. In the one that I'm used to, the form I'm used to, it says, Worthily, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness. 
I love how these two phrases go together. Truly repenting of our sins is a paraphrase of that worthy lamenting and that acknowledging our wretchedness. They don't contradict one another. They don't go against one another, but they work together. And I want to take some time tonight to explain all those phrases for us to help us understand how it is that we can come here this night and wear ashes on our forehead, that we can have this public act of piety together, but it not be breaking what Jesus has said in Matthew 6. For we, I pray, are not coming as hypocrites. I pray that we are not coming as those who just want to be seen, but we are coming as those whose hearts have been rended. That we are coming as those who are desperate for forgiveness. That we are coming as those who are desperate for true repentance. And so what does it mean to repent to begin with? What does it mean to truly repent? There are two aspects to repentance that we see with the two languages that the Bible was written in. In the Greek... It typically can be translated sometimes or thought of or defined as a changing of one's mind. In the Hebrew, it just simply means to turn. At its core, at its basis, repentance is just simply that, a turning around, to change direction. Now, the Greek is important for it points us to a sense of changing one's mind. But with Hebrew, it's just to simply turn around and they go together. These Ideas, these definitions are not at odds with one another. There are two perspectives on the same concept that help us understand what needs to happen in our lives. They go together and they belong together. I want to consider that first sense of just to simply turn around. That is to turn from going one direction and going in the opposite direction. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he said that, Progress is sometimes going the opposite direction down a trail in order to get to the fork where you went wrong and go down the correct trail. You see, we get going in one direction and we keep going that way for so long that everything is finally wrong. But in order to make any kind of proper progress, we then have to backtrack, to digress, to regress back to a different place, to an earlier place, in order to figure out where we went wrong. And then once we determine the correct direction, we can then go in that way. That is repentance, to go down the wrong trail, but to turn back around and to find the correct trail, to find the correct path. You quit doing one thing in order to do the correct thing. In the midst of that turning around, there's something else that is happening. It's realizing and owning that you did something wrong. You think that where you were going was correct, but then you realize it's not, and so you turn around. Or maybe you don't fully realize it's wrong. But you turn around anyway, just knowing that this is not going anywhere. I need to find somewhere else. And you discover that you've been going the wrong way all along. And so you mentally accept that you did the wrong thing. As well as changing the direction you're going in. This both goes, these both go together. The Hebrew assumes that you are mentally acknowledging your wrong direction while you're turning around. While at the same time, the Greek, that changing of one's mind is acknowledging that you actually do turn around and get on the right path when you realize that you are wrong. Repentance goes wrong when we have one side without the other. Repentance becomes incomplete if we merely just change our minds but don't change our actions, then it's not really proper repentance. But we find ourselves easily doing that, mentally ascending to the idea of, I've done wrong, but not changing anything that you're doing. 
not changing your direction. You can change your mind about the rightness of a particular action without actually stopping that action. And of course, if you do that too much, if you persist in that kind of perspective of changing your mind but doing the wrong thing anyway, two things are going to happen. Eventually, you may throw off the changing of your mind. You may just simply keep doing the wrong thing and finally just say, well, I was wrong to think otherwise while I've been doing this. And now I'm going to prove that what I was doing was right all along. And now I'm going to keep doing it because I know it's the right thing. That's what happens when you initially try to agree with the Word of God, but you don't ever get around to changing your actions. You will disrupt your mind and your mind will eventually be changed by those wrongful behaviors. Those wrongful actions will drive that mental repentance away. If that doesn't happen, the other thing that will happen is you just simply crash and burn in the tension of it all. You'll totally push away the Holy Spirit and just find that you've lost the healing that God has been offering to you. Too often that is what happens, that first perspective, that simply constantly doing the wrong thing while thinking something else. We see it every day in our life in the church. We see people eventually abandoning the realities of what the Bible requires and reinterpret it because they want to follow their wrongful behaviors. They want to justify their sinful actions and go about their own way. That is what happens when we separate thought from action in ourselves. However, there's a different thing that can happen. It might be that your mind is not fully convinced that you have been doing wrong, but because you have heard the command say you have done wrong, you change your action anyway because you know that it is God's Word telling you to do something. And if God's Word tells you to do something, then you should start doing that, whether your mind fully agrees with it. And we'll discover when we do that often that our minds will catch up. Our minds will come to embrace the reality of our good actions. Just like when we're doing wrong actions, our mind will come to embrace those actions and treat them as right. When we begin pursuing the right thing because God has told us to do it, our minds will catch up and come to agreement and will have that holistic kind of repentance, one that is turning around and turning away from that which was wrong to do the right, and our mind being changed from thinking that thing that was wrong was the right thing to do to realizing what the truly right and good thing is to do. That mind and will go together in this act of repentance. They work together As I said, sometimes simultaneously, but sometimes at different moments. So that's repentance. But how does what does that have to do with what I said that it is paraphrasing that worthy lamenting and that acknowledging our wretchedness? What does it mean to worthily lament? I think that this is an objective aspect of repentance, that this is the outward side of repentance here that we're talking of and that worthy lamenting and acknowledging our Wretchedness. This is something outside of our internal thought processes. That we go about worthy lamenting by doing the right thing. By acknowledging the wrong even if we don't feel that it's wrong. That we see what God's word has commanded us to do. And we say I have done other things from what God told me. I have done the wrong things. I have done the opposite. Even though I don't feel like stopping. I'm going to work to stop because God has told me not to do that. I am convicted and I want to avoid that. That is worthy lamenting that we are brought to recognize the wrongness of our actions and are brought to grief 
We're brought to sadness in an objective kind of way. We may not feel it deep down, but we are hurt by ourselves. And we seek to change. We seek to turn away from that. In our prayer books, Eucharistic Prayer, at one point we say that though we are unworthy because of our many sins to offer God any sacrifice, we ask Him to accept the duty and service we owe, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses through Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that we are unworthy, that we can't do it on our own, that everything we do is tainted by sin. It has the touch of sin upon it because it is us doing it. But we know that God has called us to make a sacrifice, and so we ask Him to accept that duty, to accept that service He has commanded, not weighing our merits, but pardoning the offense that is within it, purifying it through Jesus Christ. And that's how we are to worthily lament, to acknowledge that on one hand, in and of ourselves, we are not worthy of this calling that God has given us because we are sinners through and through. But we, accept, but we ask God to accept our actions and purify them because of Jesus' work on our behalf. We aren't worthy in ourselves because of how sin attaches to us, but God has called us to do repentance, to go about repenting, and so we strive toward it despite our imperfections, crying out and pleading the blood of Christ to purify all that we do before the Father. Our actions are united to Christ, and thus they are offered through Christ to the Father, and that makes them worthy. When we grieve our sin and we grieve it in Christ, receiving His conviction, receiving the work of His Spirit in us, we act in a worthy way, even if we don't feel worthy, even if we don't feel like we're doing the right thing. We do it because God has commanded it. Though we do it imperfectly in Christ, it becomes worthy. By our own power, it's tainted. But by the power of Christ, it is purified. In our own power, it's full of that desire to be seen, that desire to be praised. But we offer it to God in Christ, and Christ will perfect it and drive away that sinfulness. He'll drive back that sin. He will give us the strength to mortify and put it to death, little by little, day by day, to be purified and be made holy by the work of Jesus in us. And Jesus then gives those good deeds that we do to the Father, purified, and the Father receives them for Jesus' sake. Likewise, with acknowledging our wretchedness, that wretchedness is again an objective statement. It's not a description of how we feel personally. I don't really feel wretched very often. Therefore, I don't really want to say I am wretched. That seems like a terrible thing for my self-esteem. But it's true, I am a wretched person, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. That wretchedness is found in the fact that God has given me a new man, but yet the old sinful man remains and he fights against the renewal that Christ has brought in me, that he has wrought within. I am left at war with myself continually, and that is a wretched place to be, to have to fight against the sin nature. But that is the calling I've been given. That is the calling you have been given in Christ. Through baptism and through faith, you have been called away from yourself to fight sin within, to fight sin around you, to call down the power of God to give you the strength to do that which is right, to turn from your own sin and to lead others in turning from their sins. And nonetheless, all along the way, we cry out, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. For that wretchedness is broken by Jesus. He gives us the strength over and over and over to continue moving forward, to continue growing in faith. That we turn to Christ in our sin and say, Give me new strength. Give me the ability to resist. Help me, O Lord, for you have commanded the way to go and I find it is impossible. I have no strength in myself. I need strength from you, O God. Though I don't always feel guilty for my sin, give me a desire to avoid my sin. The wretchedness is an objective reality we must struggle against. Though I am broken, I don't feel it all the time. It's like that guilty conviction that a judge lays down on a defendant. The defendant may not feel any guilt for his wrongful actions, but nonetheless he has been proven guilty of the crime and the judge finds him guilty on the evidence. And thus he is objectively guilty of committing a crime. That is how our wretchedness and guilt is for us. It is an objective reality whether we feel it or not. Whether we have a sense of it or not. It is a true reality that we wrestle with day in and day out. Crying out for the power of Christ in us to give us the strength to keep moving forward. That is what we are confessing in our prayer when we think of true repentance. Worthy lamenting and acknowledging our wretchedness. My sinful nature wars against the new man that Christ has called to life within. My sinful nature resists. My sinful nature fights against God always. But God puts it to death. When I remember I am baptized, I am reminded of the fact that God has put my sin nature to death through baptism. Through the washing of the word with water. The washing of water with the word. That He has given me promises of life and salvation and forgiveness. And I am strengthened and built up to resist that old man within. And here as we come this day, we recognize that we are but bent pipes. That the water of life cannot flow through properly. And yet we cry out for healing. We cry out for new life. We cry out for God to work in us through word and spirit. Through word and sacrament. The word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper bears down upon us the reality that though we are sinners who resist, yet by the inspiration of the Spirit, we can see a new reality. We can acknowledge the reality that we are broken sinners with our words. Even if our minds don't quite find it to be true, we can live in the tension of wretchedness because Christ is for us. We can live and break that tension through confession, through taking off our mask through taking off the mask of sin, that mask of perfection that we wear before everyone we know. And we can cast it at the feet of Christ and let it shatter. And He will receive us in His kindness and draw us deeper into repentance, drawing us ever nearer to Himself. As St. Paul says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And so how can we truly come to that place of worthy lament, of acknowledging our wretchedness, of truly repenting of our sins. Well, as I've been saying over and over and over again, it is only through Jesus Himself, the God-man, the one true God who became man, that He might die for us, that He might take from us our sin and give to us in Himself His righteousness. Jesus took on flesh so that He could die. True God and yet true man. True man and yet true God. So much so that Jesus could die in our place now in order that we might have life. 
He can suffer in our place in order that we might have healing in his name. Even more so, Jesus hungered and he thirsted in this life that we might be able to eat and drink the sacrament of his body and blood and find new life, find refreshment, find fulfillment in him alone. And he even repents on our behalf in his baptism. He goes to his relative John the Baptist there at the Jordan. And he goes down to receive the baptism of repentance. Though he has no sins to confess, he repents on behalf of all of us, his people. He repents that our impenitence might be undone. He repents on our behalf so that we can then finally come to repentance. Through Jesus, we are given the faith necessary that leads to repentance. A faith that enables us to fast and pray and give, to confess our sins in public without doing it to be seen or to reveal some some righteousness within. God is at work in us through Jesus. And Jesus is the foundation of all that we're doing here this night. As we wear this ashen cross upon our foreheads, we are confessing that in ourselves we are worthy of only death. In ourselves, as sinners, we are on the path to death. Our fallen natures are driving us to death. But yet, these ashes in the shape of the cross are a reminder that Christ has died for us already. And He has been raised into new life. And that new life now flows through us through faith. By faith, we have that new life already residing in us. So therefore, death is not to be feared. We can speak of the fact that we will die because of sin. But yet, in Christ... All is forgiven. And in Christ, those in Christ will be raised to new life. And so this ashen cross is not a bragging of righteousness. It is a putting forward of unrighteousness. That we are failures. That we are sinners. That we are wretched above all men. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ for His death and His resurrection on our behalf. So may we enter into this Holy Lent now, knowing that our failures, our sins, our wretchedness is dealt with. They are all undone, and we are healed by the very one who took on those things for our sake. Jesus became man that he might become sin. And then he can give to us his righteousness. The righteousness that is necessary to stand before the Father. Jesus gives to us the very thing that we lack by taking from us the very thing that causes our lack. Our sin and our death couldn't be dealt with in heaven. They were dealt with on earth by God coming to earth through Jesus. And so may we walk forward knowing that Jesus is the basis of all that we do this Lent. May we walk forward knowing that Christ is for us. That He is receiving our confession. He is receiving our repentance. He is receiving us as we are and changing us and renewing us and giving us the strength to fight the old man within, to fight the sin within. And to know ultimately at the end, though death may overtake us, nevertheless, in Christ is resurrection. In Christ is new life. In Christ is the glory of eternal life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.